History is full of bad decisions based on bad advice. Like in 210 BC, uh, when the very first emperor uh, of China, his name was Qin Shuangzi, decided that he wanted to live forever. He wanted an elixir that would allow him to live eternally. And so he went to his advisors, he went to his alchemists, his philosophers, his opportunists, his sketchy characters, basically anybody who thought that they could give him this gift of eternal life. And they said, well, if you will take this pill every day, it will prepare your body, and then we can work on making an elixir for you that will give you eternal life. So he took the pill every single day. The problem was the pills were 100% just mercury. <laughs> That's why I laugh. Tragically, it didn't give him eternal life. Instead, it made him insane and then eventually killed him. This was clearly a bad decision uh, made on some bad advice. There's a place to write this in your notes. Eating mercury is bad advice. <laughs> Always, okay? Not that profound, but just write it down. <laughs> or the decision in 1937 that a group of people made that they would fill the Hindenburg, the largest dirigible ever made, in fact, the largest aircraft ever made, they would fill it with highly flammable hydrogen gas, when in fact it had been designed to use helium gas, and it ended in disaster. A horrible decision based on horrible advice, right? Or in 1962, when Decca Records took a pass on the addition of these young boys, these four young lads from Liverpool who came in, they just started a new band called The Beatles. And they explained very nicely to, his man, to their manager, Brian Epstein, guitar groups are on the way out, Mr. Epstein. <laughs> Wrong decision, bad decision based on bad advice, right? Or like Napoleon's decision in 1812 to invade Russia, which ended in a disaster, and then Hitler's decision later to invade Russia, which failed for many of the exact same reasons that Napoleon had failed 100 years earlier. Bad decisions based on bad advice. The one that jumped out to me that I, I wasn't that familiar with, maybe you are, but I wasn't that familiar with, was the story of the first, I'm sorry, the 19th century Tsar uh, Russian Tsar Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra. They made the decision to trust in, to believe in, and to appoint as one of their primary ad advisors a man who claimed to be a holy man, who claimed to have secret powers, who was actually something of a charlatan, a man named Rasputin. I mean, who would trust this guy, right? He's <laughs> six foot four inches of scary. And he claimed that he was a holy man with special powers, when in reality he was a drunk who led a sex cult. But he ended up having so much influence on Tsar and Tsarina that he ended up appointing high-level officials and ministers and military leaders, and he dismissed those based on his advice as well. One of the most tragic stories of his, of his advice given was that he wanted more power, and he suggested that Nicholas II go to the front lines to fight on the battle, in the battle uh, that they were fighting in World War I, even though Nicholas had no experience in battle, no experience leading an army. In truth, Rasputin didn't like the commander in charge, who had a grudge against him. It seemed that this man suspected he might be a total crackpot charlatan, <laughs> right? And so he said, Rasputin said, you should go and lead the army at the front lines. That is real leadership. And sadly, Nicholas took that advice. And he ended up following that advice. And, and he removed this seasoned commander and took over control himself. It was a disaster. And all the blame fell, of course, not on Rasputin, but on Nicholas II. Meanwhile, based on Rasputin's advice, Nicholas had appointed Alexandra to lead the country in his absence while he ran the war. And it turned out she was not any better at running a country than he was running a war. 
So she leaned heavily on her advisor, Rasputin, right? And of course it ended very, very badly. It ended in disaster, but not just a disaster for them and for that period, if you think about it. In reality, it's so undermined, it's so placed in question, this, this established system of Tsardom within Russia that it led directly to the Russian Revolution in 1917, which played a critical role in the establishment of the Soviet Union, which played a critical role in bringing us the Russia we know and love today. Thanks, Rasputin, <laughs> right? History is full of these characters who for good reasons and sometimes horrible reasons make these decisions that are based on really horrible advice. And so they make horrible decisions and they end up taking a horrible toll on themselves, on the people around them, and sometimes for generations to follow. And we can learn from their mistakes or we can repeat them. Scripture is also full of these characters. And today we're gonna to continue the series Chronicles of the Kings looking at some of the early kings in Israel's history and asking how can we learn from the mistakes that they made as kings, as the mistakes that they made as a nation so that we don't repeat them. Way back in Deuteronomy 17, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right before the people of God had even entered the promised land, God had warned them, when you get to this promised land, you are going to want a king like all the other nations have a king. And if you must have a king, Make sure that that king does not accumulate for himself many houses and many wives and many horses and many chariots. Make sure that that king doesn't go back to Egypt because I just saved you out of Egypt. I just commanded you to never return to Egypt. He warned them before they even entered the land and then generations later we see in 1 Samuel 8, the people come to Samuel and demand a king because all the other nations have a king. And God again warns them. He says, a king will lord over you and will steal your sons and daughters and build war machines and will force you to do hard labor. A king will tax you beyond what you can bear and you will beg for relief from that king. And as we've seen over the last several weeks now in this series, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what became the reality in these first kings of Israel. Samuel, or Saul rather, was an absolute train wreck. David was better, but he also seemed to, to violate all of the laws, all of the, the prescriptions that God had laid out for what a king mustn't do. And Solomon, I mean, we looked at Solomon last week, he broke it even further, he took it even further, as Dan showed us last week. He had more horses and more chariots and more soldiers and more slaves than ever before. He built an amazing temple to be the house of the Lord, but then built an even more amazing house for himself, right? He returned to Egypt and he made these strategic alliances with them and with all of the neighboring countries to ensure Israel's safety rather than relying on God. He married foreign women, including Pharaoh's daughter, to make those sorts of political alliances. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel not to intermarry with other people, with women of other tribes because, and other nations because they would turn their heart away from God. And as we learned last week, Sam, or Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth in other words, of alliances, at 300 concubines. It says, in fact, they did turn his heart away from God. And Dan told us last week that Solomon ended up building temples and shrines to these foreign gods for his wives. And unlike his father, David, Solomon actually worshiped these other gods. He worshiped at those very shrines. And so God basically said, Solomon, I've given you so much. I've made you this, this promise that I made to your father. I've given you this kingdom. You haven't obeyed me, so I'm gonna tear it away from you. 
That's where we ended last week. It's where we pick up the story this week. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 11. And in 1 Samuel, where we pick up the story, Solomon is still king. He's still making horrible choices. And so God, as he promised he would, raises up adversaries in the nations around them. The kings and leaders of these other nations whom Israel had previously defeated have now rebuilt and they've returned and they're hungry for revenge. And God raises up rebel leaders not only from the nations around them, but even from within Israel itself. Chapter 11, starting in verse 26. Another rebel leader was Jeroboam, son of Nebat, one of Solomon's own officials. He came from the town of Zereda and Ephraim and his mother was Zeruah, a widow. This is the story behind his rebellion. Solomon is rebuilding the supporting terraces and repairing the walls of the city of his father, David. Jeroboam was a very capable young man, and when Solomon saw how industrious he was, he put him in charge of the labor force from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, the descendants of Joseph. It says the labor force he was in charge of, but as we read the story, we will find out that that is more like forced labor, slaves. The descendants of Joseph, who had been slaves in Egypt, are now slaves in Israel, just like God had said they would be under a king in 1 Samuel. This king, Solomon, looks a lot more like Pharaoh than he looks like David. Continuing in verse 29. And one day, as Jeroboam was leaving Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah from Shiloh met him along the way. Ahijah was wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone in a field, and Ahijah took this new hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 of these pieces, for what, this is what the Lord, our God of Israel, says. I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I will give 10 tribes to you. But I will leave him one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel. For Solomon has abandoned me and worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Shemash, the god of Moab, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites. He's not followed my ways and done what is pleasing in my sight. He's not obeyed my decrees and regulations as David, his father, did. It's helpful, I think, to point out that there's nothing particularly significant about this cloak that is split, other than to point out that it said it's a new cloak. And in this time, this era, people wouldn't have had multiple cloaks, maybe one or two. This is a brand new cloak. And so him using this is like a very expensive, you know, uh, illustration, a very, very expensive sort of object lesson to demonstrate just how sincere his words are. Skipping down uh, to verse 37. And I will place you on the throne of Israel and you will rule over all your heart desires. If you will listen to what I tell you and follow my ways and do whatever I consider to be right. If you obey my decrees and commands as my servant David did, then I will always be with you. I will establish an enduring dynasty for you as I did for David, and I'll give Israel to you. Because of Solomon's sin, I will punish the descendants of David, though not forever. It's like he's making a new covenant, an additional covenant with Jeroboam. God is saying, Solomon forfeited all the good plans that I had for him and for Israel. I want, that is my heart, God says. I want to bless you. I want success for you. That is what I promised and Solomon threw it away. I will give that to you if you will turn your heart to me and to me alone. It reminds me a little bit of the parable that, that Jesus tells in Matthew uh, of a king who had prepared this amazing wedding feast for his son. 
And he invited all these important people, all these guests that he wanted to be there, and none of them show up. And so the king goes to his servants and says, go scour the streets. Go find the lame, the blind, the poor, the homeless, the, the people that no one respects, and bring them, because my heart is to bless. My heart is to give this gift. And if they don't want it, I will find those who do. I think in Jeroboam's story, in this story where, where he's being given a second chance, we see that God gives us opportunities to realign our hearts. That's a real fill-in. <laughs> even when we have messed things up, even when Israel had lost its course in only three generations, God gives us opportunities to realign our hearts and our lives, to make right what has gotten off track personally, and even in this case, corporately. Will we recognize those opportunities though? In our lives, or when we experience insecurity, or instability, or adversaries, all those circumstances that Dan shared with us last week in Solomon's beautiful prayer. In those situations, will we rely on our own human capacities to secure our own safety, our own legacy, our own good? See, I think insecurity gives us opportunities to realign our priorities too. To God's glory or to our good, as Dan said. Insecurities give us an opportunity to check what our priorities really are. God promised Jeroboam through the prophet Ahijah that he would give Jeroboam the throne, that he would give him the covenant of David. He would give him the nation of Israel. Jeroboam knew the histories. Jeroboam knew the stories. Jeroboam knew that God was good to his word. Next verse. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but he fled to King Shishak of Egypt and stayed there until Solomon died. Faced with insecurity, Faced with a challenge to his own security, Jeroboam misses the opportunity and chooses rather than to trust God to flee. And where does he flee to? Egypt. To the very place God forbid kings to go, to seek shelter and safety among his peoples and slavers with King Shishak of Egypt. It's amazing when you read these accounts how often Egypt comes up in these stories. How often God's people turn back to the very source of so much of their pain, the darkest part of their story, and yet don't we tend to do that too? When we're faced with insecurities, when we're faced with unknowns, when we're faced with adversaries, do we tend to turn to the tried and true methods of finding security, comfort, peace, release, even when we know those things are destructive for us? And so the story of Solomon ends somewhat glumly like this. The rest of the events of Solomon's reign, including all his deeds and his wisdom, are recorded in the book of Acts of Solomon. Solomon ruled in Jerusalem over, over all Israel for 40 years. When he died, he was buried in the city of David, named for his father. Then his son Rehoboam became the next king. The dynasty of Solomon, David to Solomon, was now passed on to his son Rehoboam, at least for a season. Let's read, starting in, in chapter 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, where all Israel gathered to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Naboth, heard this, he returned from Egypt, for he had fled to Egypt to escape from King Solomon. The leaders of Israel summoned him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel went to speak with Rehoboam. Your father was a hard master, they said. Lighten the harsh labor demands and heavy taxes that your father imposed on us. Then we will be your loyal subjects. Rehoboam replied, Give me three days to think this over. 
then come back for my answer. So the people went away. Now it was customary in that time when a new king was installed that the people had the opportunity to come and, and to beg the king to say, please release us from these onerous burdens that the previous king had put on us. So perhaps that's what they're doing, but I think perhaps it's more than that as well. I think perhaps the people are saying this king, Solomon, has demanded all of the things that God said he would. High taxes, forced labor, we are enslaved. He is taking our sons and our daughters. And so Rehoboam, in this moment, is faced with one of those opportunities to realign his heart, to realign his kingdom, to realign his kingship. Will he recognize it? What will he do? I'm hopeful. Let's read. <laughs> Then King Rehoboam discussed the matter with the older men who had counseled his father Solomon. What is your advice, he asked. How should I answer these people? The older counselors replied, if you're willing to be a servant to these people today and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your loyal subjects. How valuable is good counsel, right? I mean, how wise for Rehoboam to go see these older men, these leaders who had counseled his father Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. I mean, think about that. How qualified do you need to be to be an advisor to the wisest man who ever lived, who knew everything about everything, right? These men are qualified to speak into this question. And what they advise is humility. What they advise is peacemaking. What they advise is to offer moderation and humility. And it sounds like great advice. So good job, Rehoboam. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm sure this is going to work out for you. Let's keep reading. <laughs> but Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men. Instead, ask the opinion of the young men who'd grown up with him and who are now his advisors. What's your advice? He asked them. How should I answer these people who want me to lighten the burden imposed by my father? I mean, basically, like, instead of trusting these really wise men who were advisors to the wisest men who ever lived, I'm going to trust the buddies that I grew up with, right? The young men replied, this is what you should do. Tell those this is what you should tell those complainers who want a lighter burden. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. This is the formerly enslaved people hearing this from their king. There's a place to write this in your notes. Who are your advisors? Who are the people that you are allowing to shape your decisions and to shape your life? Who are the counselors in your life who have permission to speak truth into your life? who are more interested in bringing glory to God than in simply telling you what you want to hear to pursue your own interests, your own comforts, your own security, your own whatever. Who are the people that you would trust love you enough to tell you what you need to hear and not just what you want to hear? If you've been here any amount of time at all, you have heard Pastor Chris talk about the multitude of wise counselors he's had in his life from the time that he was a teen. You know these names, names like Roger Tweeto, Tweeto, Joyce Heyer, Tim Stenerson, and on and on and on. These trusted voices that have spoken truth into his life and his ministry for years. Do you have those people in your life? Can you name those names like he is able to name those names. I'll be honest with you, there are sermons that preachers preach because they are just crushing it. I never get to preach those. <laughs> the ones I preach are the ones that I need to work on. And I used to be a lot better at this, I feel like, in my life. I used to know who those people were, people who could both affirm me who I am in Christ, that I'm a beloved child of the King, but who would also bust my chops a little bit 
when they saw me, that I stopped being the person that God declared me to be, who wants me to be, who's making me to be. People who would take me aside and say, I love you, and I'm seeing some patterns in your life that don't seem healthy. What's that about? Let me say this to you. If all the voices in your life are just telling you how awesome you are and how you don't need to change a thing, you might not be getting the whole story. I'm just telling you, all right? If there's no one in your life who loves you well and encourages you well, but also occasionally pulls you aside and slaps you upside the head, you might need some better advisors. Increasingly, I think even within the church, our culture is moving towards this place where none of us is allowed to speak into the lives of anyone else without being accused of being a judge. Who are you to judge me? Take the, take the log out of your own eye. I think we might be misusing that verse. <laughs> Can I get an amen? amen? Hey, there I got one in. <laughs> Let's continue with the story. Rehoboam first seeks wise counsel and then poor counsel and chooses to side with the scorpion whippers. And he goes before the people and he says exactly what his friends had told them to tell him. You think my father was bad, just wait. Verse 16, then all Israel realized that the king had refused to listen to them and they responded, down with the dynasty of David. We have no interest in the son of Jesse. Back to your homes, O Israel. Look out for your own house, O David. I wanna point out none of the commentaries I read go here, so I, I might be going rogue on this. But, but notice what it is the people are rejecting in that statement. It's so much more than just Rehoboam. It's the dynasty of David. It's the son of Jesse. In real ways, the people are rejecting God's covenant to David and God's covenant to them. It's a place to write this down. Our poor choices can affect other people's view of God. We tell ourselves, we tell our kids, we tell our grandkids that we have all of our trust in God. We put it on our money. But do they see that trust in us in the midst of our anxiety about the stock market, anxiety about over our elected leaders, anxiety about how our nation is handling issues around gender? Do they see it in the choices that we make to align ourselves with earthly powers instead of trusting in God to accomplish his will because the battle belongs to the Lord. We are simply players in it. Rehoboam's decision to follow this disastrous advice led not only to his loss of power in the dividing of a nation, it resulted in Israel leaving the trajectory of the story that Yahweh had outlined for her, the plan that God had given Israel. Our poor choices can affect others' view of God. Continuing the story. So the people of Israel returned home. But Rehoboam continued to rule over the Israelites who lived in the towns of Judah. King Rehoboam said, Adorinium, who was in charge of the forced labor, there it is, to restore order. The people of Israel stoned him to death. When this news reached King Rehoboam, he quickly jumped into his chariot and fled to Jerusalem. And to this day, the northern tribes of Israel have refused to be ruled by a descendant of David. When the people of Israel learned of Jeroboam's return from Egypt, they called an assembly and made him king over all Israel. So the only tribe of Jude, only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the family of David. The nation is now officially split, just as had been prophesied. As you continue to read these stories in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Second Chronicles, the people of God, who were supposed to be one exemplary nation, a city on the hill, an example to the watching nations around them, 
are now at war with each other. Both kings seek the advice and the counsel of others and based on that advice, make decisions to return to worshiping other gods, rebuilding the shrines and the high places to other gods, and it ends in disaster. King Shishak of Egypt, the very king who Jeroboam had fled to for his security, brings an invading army into Judah and sacks the temple and the palace and the whole grounds, capturing and stealing all of the gold, all of the treasure, even stealing the gold shields from the temple Solomon had built. And both of their stories end in these kings passing down their broken kingdoms to their broken sons, who will then repeat the cycle. <laughs> if our goal in this series is to learn from the stakes of these leaders, then they have provided us with a plethora of examples of failures, right? I mean, it's almost hard as you read through these stories to feel a little bit hopeless. Are there no positive examples of these stories that we can point to? What's interesting, as I was reading through these sections in preparation for this, I noticed this, this theme, this phrase that began to emerge in so many of these stories, even in the indictments of these leaders, God used these phrases that were like, you have not served me like my servant David did. You have not followed me the decrees and regulations like my servant David did. I will not do this for the sake of my servant David. It's easy, at least for me, to wonder, I mean, like, I mean, David wasn't that great at this, right? I mean, at following the decrees? In what ways was David all that much better at following God's decrees and regulations than these other kind of knuckle-headed kings that we see? Well, I think in some ways he truly was. For instance, under David's reign, idol worship really didn't have a foothold in Israel. Under David's reign, he built these systems so that people would be called regularly to gather in Jerusalem, a central place of worship where they worship God. We see in his stories him returning, returning regularly to worship and to study God's word. So in some ways, he really was better than others, but in other ways, he wasn't. I mean, David had a bunch of wives and horses and chariots. He had a bunch of wealth and gold. Perhaps David's lowest moment that we're all familiar with was when he chose to betray one of his closest allies and closest friends, Uriah, and had his friend murdered because he wanted to cover up the fact that David had slept with his wife Bathsheba and she was now pregnant with David's illegitimate child. He then marries Bathsheba to cover up his adultery and his murder. It doesn't get a whole lot lower on the following the decrees list than this story, right? In many ways, David wasn't better at keeping these secrets, so what set him apart? I think one of the things that sets David apart in all of these stories is the advisors that he chose to surround himself with. You see, right in the very next story, after David's story of betrayal and murder and of, of Bathsheba's pregnancy in, in Samuel, 2 Samuel 11, the very next verse, the prophet Nathan comes before David and speaks hard truth to David. He says, what you've done is wrong. You've sinned against God. You've sinned against Uriah. You've sinned against Bathsheba. But even more, you sinned against Israel. You are the anointed one. You are the leader of these people. You have sinned. And David needed that voice. And I think so do we. There's a place to write this in your notes. Godly advisors help us identify realignment opportunities. <laughs> That's kind of a euphemism, but they help us identify opportunities where we need to change. We need people in our lives who can encourage us, we also need to have the freedom to call it stuff in our life that's messed up. Do we have those people? 
Nathan called David out. And what does David do? Does he respond defensively? Does he say, like, who are you to judge me? How about you work on yourself and get back to me once you're perfect jerk? Right? No. What does it say that he did? Verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. He owned it. He confessed it before a trusted advisor and before God. The scripture tells us, scripture promises that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to remove those sins, to renew us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, all of this stuff, all of the garbage. It's not that we are perfect. It's that in Christ we are made perfect. You know what? God can make beauty out of even our darkest moments. We all know that Jesus, we all probably know, <laughs> that Jesus was born in the city of David, right? And that Jesus came from the line of David. But how do we trace that lineage back to David? Through Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. God chose to reveal himself in Christ through one of his most faithful followers' lowest moments. And I think there's something we need to see about who God is and how he sees us and how he wants us to even see our failures as opportunities to be reconciled to him, to realign ourselves. God loves to make beautiful things out of our failures if we confess. Confession is key to removing idols in our lives. And friends, we can't confess what we cannot see. And at least for me, so much of what needs confession in my life are things that I stopped seeing a long time ago. Sometimes we need people in our lives who can help us identify the opportunities to confess and to realign our hearts and our lives, to invite us to once again follow with our whole hearts. And sometimes, I think we need to invite God to reveal to us those areas that perhaps we don't even realize we've allowed the idols to creep back in. The high places to be rebuilt. The cultural influences to overshadow what the word of God says. David needed this. David, in so many of his psalms, cries out to God, show me. Probably most famously in one Psalm 139, where David says these words, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. We want to invite you and we want to invite you at home right now to take a few minutes to do exactly that, to invite the Holy Spirit to search you and to reveal to you any areas that you need to bring into the light. They need to be realigned to the heart of God, to the mission of God in restoring this world to himself. They need confession. They need to be put back onto the path of real everlasting life. We also want to invite you in the days and weeks that come to find your people. If there aren't people in your life who can both encourage you but also knock you upside the head sometimes, <laughs> I would say you're not done with that project yet. I challenge you, I challenge myself to surround us with godly men and women who could speak God's truth into our lives and for whom we can be speakers of truth as well. Because only then can we truly be the people of God that he's calling us to be. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these imperfect characters that you've included in these stories. And God, we acknowledge that we are imperfect, and worse often we are blind to our imperfections. 
We are blind to the, the advice that we simply receive from culture and from friends. We're blind to the advice that we often give, sometimes even under the guise of trying to be godly or to be peacemakers. God, help us to be bold, to speak truth, but to do it in love to one another. God, this is complicated stuff, but it's so countercultural. We need your help. We need your spirit to bind these sorts of conversations together. Give us wisdom as we choose the advisors who shape our lives and help us to be the kind of advisors to others that they need in order to know you more. We praise you because you're good and the plans you have for us are good. Help us to, to realign our hearts and our minds, to reorient our lives to you. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.